0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 56 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for pressing play and inviting me into your life. Did you know that the School of Wellbeing podcast almost didn't happen? The reason you're listening to this podcast today is because of my dear friend and colleague, Katrina Myers. Initially, when Katrina said, you should start a wellbeing podcast, I said, no, not happening. At the time, my fears of not being smart enough, that it would cost too much, it would take too much time, and no one would listen, outweighed the potential benefits. But Katrina being Katrina, she saw what was possible for me before I could, and she proceeded to keep nudging me until I had enough self-belief to make it happen. Don't get me wrong, podcasting is not all unicorns and rainbows. Creating a weekly podcast is hard work. On average, it takes around eight hours of work to produce a 45-minute podcast, and it's absolutely worth it. I can't imagine my life now without the School of Wellbeing. It's one of my favorite things. With this in mind, I have come to believe that one of the most critical factors in our personal and professional growth is who we surround ourselves with, including who we choose to follow and listen to. When we fill our lives with examples of big-hearted humans that are willing to take inspired action in their lives, it's an invitation for us to do the same. As the saying goes, you can't be what you can't see. So I'm thrilled to announce that Katrina Myers and myself are joining forces to create a live event filled with heart and mind-opening conversations, Grow Where You're Planted, Thursday, the 20th of October in Barham, New South Wales. If you live in the area, we would love to see you there. Grab some friends, have a road trip and come on down for the day. Or if you know someone in the area, please let them know about this event. We have designed the day as an opportunity to expand your thinking and inspire you to take massive action in your life. For more information, see the link in the show notes. Now on with today's show. Today you are in for a real treat. When I finished my conversation with today's guest, I knew you would love it. How do you make decisions? What stops you from taking action? Who do you look to for permission? These are such important questions for all of us to reflect on. Learning how to make decisions based on what's right for us and not what we think we should do is a skill and it requires practice. So many of us have been conditioned to not rock the boat, to not be difficult, and to look to others for all the answers. And today's guest, Benita Bench, shares with us how to get into the driver's seat of our lives and make better decisions. Benita lives in rural Queensland with her husband and four boys. She's a coach, speaker, and author of the moving memoir, The Art of Trying, an intimate account of my journey to conceive. From a career in the beef industry to public relations, rural marketing and branding to coaching and writing, Helping people has always been at the heart of Benita's work. Now through her transformative coaching programs, Benita helps ambitious mums feeling lost in motherhood reclaim their sense of self, shine their light and live their life by design. In this conversation, we discuss the decision-making process, what stops us from taking aligned action, why we often seek permission of others and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Benita Bench. Benita, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you, Meg.
1: I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about making decisions, something that we have a tendency to avoid. So why is it important to talk about the process of making decisions?
1: I think it's important, Meg, because it's often not something that we're consciously aware of or think about. Firstly, how do we make decisions? are we good decision makers and really understanding for ourselves, what is our decision-making style or what our tendencies are? I think we can easily go through life really not even thinking about the process or understanding our strengths or weaknesses when it comes to decision-making. We can think we're a good decision-maker or we can think we're not a good decision-maker and use those stories in our lives or we can just completely really not even be aware of it at all, so I think it's it's important and it's become a big part of my life in the last few years while well, when i since I became more focused on this was to understand my own behaviour when it came to decision making what are and what sits behind that? like what are the stories I'm telling myself? What are the beliefs I'm holding on to? What are the fears that I'm holding on to around decision making? in order to enable me to become a more effective decision maker and just be self-aware. Where are my gaps? What am I wanting to be? How am I wanting to be better at doing this and how that impacts my life? It's this self-awareness piece, isn't it, Meg, that it's always the first step to just understand ourselves and where we sit as a decision maker and do is it something we want to be better at and how do we go about that? So many of us get to this
0: point where we think, how did I get here? I didn't even choose to get here. It just slowly happened and I'm in a situation that's not workable, that's not sustainable, I'm not particularly happy with it. But when they look back, they don't see any decisions that they made. It's just how life unfolded. It just happened and we get into these spaces. So why do you think we struggle to be even aware of the fact that we need to make a decision?
1: Well, firstly, I, just to comment on what you just shared, I think we can end up in a situation where we feel like we didn't make choices along the way, when in fact we did make choices, but we may not have recognised them as choices or been conscious of them as choices because we're always choosing, aren't we? Like we're always, everything is always a choice, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. So, um, why do we struggle to make decisions, um, or even be aware of how we got to where we are? Because I think I think we're not taught how. For many of us, it, it comes from our childhood, where or our or our programming, our upbringing, our environment, where we're not actually taught the process and the skill of decision making. And also, we may have had decision making opportunities. Sort of taken away from us, um, depending on the people who raised us or the environment we're in, where they have may have made a lot of decisions for us. Um, and I know, even as a mum, I have to watch myself all the time. Where my kids will ask me a question: "What should I wear a singlet tonight, Mum?" You know, after they come out of the bath, and it's so easy to say yes or no when. I'm really trying to say, what do you think? Or what would you do? Because with this knowledge that I want to facilitate better decision-making in my children, because as a mom, as educators, as busy people, it's easy to just want to get it done and and not allow that opportunity for exploration, analysis, decision-making in our little people as individuals.
0: Yes. It's so interesting to note that it's easy for us to jump in and fix for others. But when it comes to ourselves, there's almost like a big lag, like, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure about myself, but I know how to fix everybody else in my life. And as you're talking, I'm also reflecting on the way that I was parented. And there were times when I was younger, when I was making big decisions where I'd be sitting down at the kitchen table, talking to my mum and dad, and we're going through the pros and cons. And i desperately wanted them to tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Like I desperate, like, just give me the answer, give me the answer. And they always held space for me to be in this discomfort. They held that tension and allowed me to make decisions. And looking back now, I think what a gift that I've been supported to make decisions along the way. doesn't mean they were always great decisions, but I learned from that. And working in schools, I know that that's not the norm. For most young people, it's their parents, it's people in their environment that are making decisions for them. And so it's powerful to think about how are we teaching these skills to our young people and then to reflect on for ourselves, have we learned the ability to make decisions for ourselves instead of just proving ourselves or doing what people want from us compared to what do I want? What do I choose for myself?
1: So powerful and important, Meg. Meg. I know for myself as a recovering people pleaser, we can make the people in our lives, the authority for us where we are continually trying to live up to their standards or to keep them happy. What we believe they would think is right or good instead of becoming our own authority of our lives and trusting our own inner wisdom or intuition about what is, about what is best for us. And I think when you're when you're little and your subconscious mind is so open, it, it's so easy for this to happen. Unless you're given the skills and the the ability, and also the self belief to trust yourself, to believe that your decisions are worthy and they don't have to be right or wrong or good or bad, but they're yours alone and you can own them. So I think it in terms of why we struggle to make decisions is a lack of belief, um, a lack of self-belief in our own self, people pleasing, wanting to do what's right or good, not get it wrong. Fear of failure is huge of being afraid to, to fail, being afraid to get it wrong. Uh, and what will that mean? Fear of rejection or not understanding our priorities. And, and again, just that, programming or conditioning from our years gone by and allowing that to kind of run us without being aware of it.
0: And this is something that I'm quite curious about is often people look like they're indecisive. They're not sure, but there seems to be a part of them that's almost waiting for permission. They're waiting for their colleagues. They're waiting for the leadership at school. They're waiting for their husbands or their wives or their parents or someone to give them permission.
1: Have you noticed that? Absolutely. And I see it every day in in my work as a coach where they are waiting for permission and I've certainly been in that same place where I've gone and surveyed every person in my life before I've made a decision. I've actually learned recently through human design that that's actually my decision-making process, um, which has given me this huge sense of, ah, now I know why I do that. And I go and do it. I go and ask, you know, 10, 12 people. Um, And I used to think that was to help them make a decision for me. But what I've learned is that I actually always end up going back to what I wanted to do. I'm just sounding it out with everyone. Yes, it's sort of everyone's got these different decision-making styles, but absolutely it is a thing that we are waiting for permission because we want someone else to tell us that it's okay and that, yes, you should put yourself first or you should do this thing because it's the right thing to do. But in fact, Meg, everyone else's permission slip is made or the permission they give or their advice comes through their own lens or their own filter which is influenced by their own priorities, beliefs and programming. So no one else can really ever stand in your shoes authentically and so you know, it's that's pretty damn scary, isn't it? And that we go looking for permission because we're needing the support or the, self, the bolstering of self-belief or support to say it's okay for you to do this when we all need to write ourselves our own big fat permission slip. And coming back again to our upbringing and our, and our education system, it's ingrained in us. Like you think about wanting, needing a permission slip to wear the wrong uniform for the day or to go downtown at lunchtime or to leave school early to go to a doctor's appointment. We're taught to ask for permission. We're taught to ask our parents for permission to do things. It's part of our society. So it's no wonder then when we become grown ups that we're kind of standing there going, okay, who do I need to ask? Um, <laughs> and it takes a lot of self belief and courage to, to then say, well, actually, um, of course there's people in our lives that we we need to talk to things about but the, usually we need to give permission to ourselves.
0: Yes I'm laughing because I'm visualizing myself having moments when I'm just standing in the kitchen thinking where's the adult like who left me here <laughs> like where's the adult yeah. going to come and help me and save me. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I do and I and I think of when my children ask me things and I'm sort of going, I don't know. I just don't know. I can't make one more decision. <laughs> I'm decision fatigued out. And that's a thing too, isn't it? As grown-ups these days, we we do hit decision fatigue because we do make so many decisions.
0: And with so many decisions, when it comes to the big things, I just don't have the energy. I don't have the time to tackle that. I'll deal with that later. And then we put it off again and again and again. Then all of a sudden it's So three five years, and that thing that we need to address hasn't been addressed, and in the meantime, it's just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Because what we know is, as we avoid things, it's a negative loop. It's just going to get bigger and bigger. That perceived threat just gets more and more.
1: Hundred percent. And avoidance is is not a a great strategy for things that are hanging around. And I mean, I'm an absolute advocate for. Coaches and support people, maybe not a coach, but using a, a mentor, or someone you trust in your life or getting therapy or whatever find someone who you who you can talk to to help unpack that decision um, rather than leaving it or anything hanging around in your life to explore it and unpack it and and move forward with it because everything happens on the other side of a decision.
0: And I've also learned that sometimes just making the decision is the most powerful part. It's all of the what will I do, what will I do. But once you have made that decision, it's almost like the weight is off your shoulders and your body has this sense of relief that I have a plan now. I've got some action steps and this is where I'm headed. I'm not sure if it's the right path, but I've made a decision and I'm moving somewhere.
1: Yes, Meg. I've also learned, experienced and seen that so often that because we can't stay, we don't ever stay in the same place. According to universal law, we are we are growing or we are dying. So and being stuck in indecision is a is a disintegrative state. We're deteriorating. Um, it is not a nice place to sit. And all of your listeners would know the feeling of being in indecision where it can show up as fear, doubt, worry, anxiety. And as I have understood myself better and explored this further, I've come to know when I'm feeling, I I call it yucky. Um, It's not a very technical term, but you know, that feeling of unease in my body. Usually I will say to myself, Benita, what decision do you need to make? Because you are sitting in indecision. Even if, 51% of your decisions are right or positive or supportive, you're moving in a positive direction. So I think we all can all get better at being okay with things not maybe working out the way we expected. I don't want to use the word failure because I don't really believe in failure, Um, but things not working out the way we would like them to and using that as a learning opportunity so that at least we keep moving forward you know, make the decision, move forward, bang, 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 and keep going, gives you momentum and the positive energy and the frequency that it puts you on when you make a, a new decision and you break through that barrier and come out the other side, you then attract more to you that's in that's at the same frequency. So it keeps you going forward rather than st- stuck, and which is in fact, going backwards. Um, there's so much power in that. And yes, you may never, you might not know what comes after a decision and you won't know all the steps and how exactly how it's going to work out. What I know to be true is that as long as you're making the decisions and they're supporting you and you're in a good energy and you're moving forward, then things will show up that are, that you'll never expect that will quite often blow your mind and opportunities will come along, resources will show up that you never anticipated, simply off the back of making a decision.
0: So I'd love to get concrete. We're thinking about an example in your own life where you've come to this awareness that something's not working for
1: you and you've made a decision, and if you could walk us through that. One of the most major decisions I've made in the past 12 months was to Give up alcohol, and I did that on Christmas Day, twenty twenty one. As we were driving to my parents' place to have Christmas lunch, it seemed out of the blue as we were driving that this decision came to me. But in reality, it had been building for probably two years. And as we were driving to my parents', and I was in the car with my husband and our boys, I turned to my husband and I said, "This is the last day I'm going to have a drink." for 12 months if maybe ever and he said oh that's a pretty big call and i said i said yeah i i know um but i it feels absolute it feels now is the time i feel completely solid in this and for probably 12 months prior possibly longer i had been in indecision about it i had been noticing habits behavior, my mindset around alcohol. I had been consuming more than I felt comfortable with. It had become uh, a bit of a mental battle for me. If I was going to have a drink or not in the evenings, will I have one? Will I have two? Will I have none? I guess just to give some context, I grew up in rural Queensland. Drinking is very normal. Um started drinking as a teenager and did all through uni and career, having a beer at night, having a wine, you know, that's all very normal at social events. And even in the evenings after work or with dinner, Um, I didn't drink when I was pregnant or breastfeeding. I guess it was after coming out of having children, our youngest is four now. uh, Once I weaned him, I was then faced with this dilemma again of what, how do I feel about alcohol? I, I was actually quite excited to be able to go back to having a drink. And That was fine for a while, but it was when I started to have had a few difficult challenges at the end of last year that actually was worrying that I was using alcohol as an escapism as a a tool to a numbing tool because I wasn't handling my emotions or I wasn't even aware of my emotions and what I was, I was suppressing my emotions. I didn't want to feel them. I didn't want to deal with the major, the, the real issue. I think by the time I got to that Christmas day, I had recognized I was, I was not in a a good space around drinking. I was in a a bit of a, I was spiraling down with the amount I was drinking and it was just causing a lot of issues for me in my, no one else noticed it. Um, and I don't think, you know, you, I, I guess you probably wouldn't describe it as alcohol as an alcoholic. I was still really high functioning, still work going along with life normally, but I was very concerned with, with my own behavior. So That decision, uh, I think I had wanted to make it for a long time but didn't believe I had the courage. I'd never gone sort of more than 30 days without having a drink outside of having children. So I was really scared that I would let myself down, that I would be rejected from my family, you know, not that they would reject me but, you know, that's the sort of stuff that goes on in your mind, that will I fit in, how will I go socially Will my marriage be affected? Will I be still be fun? Will I want to go out? So many questions that play out without even being aware of them. So not only was it the decision to look after my health better, to be me less alcohol, you know, me less the alcohol in my life, it's also an identity shift. There was lots of things that I was weighing up with this decision. But when the time came, I recognized I'd been sitting in indecision for a long time and it was causing a lot of this feeling in my body. So I made the decision and I haven't had a drop of alcohol since. And it's been fantastic. Uh, I feel better. I think more clearly that whole mental struggle is completely removed. Has it been easy? No. Do I miss it? Yes. At times Um, I miss kind of but there's so many zero alcohol products on the market now which is great so you can still feel like you're having a drink or a beer with with it with people so from a decision making perspective Meg that decision took a long time to make but was very clear at the time and has been huge and led to so much as well that I wasn't expecting that's been so positive
0: you have beautifully articulated all of the really obvious and subtle struggles that we face when we're making decisions. You know, your body was telling you it wasn't quite right. You're starting to observe yourself drinking more. You're observing yourself getting a little bit irritated. You are observing yourself having this mental debate. How many? Is it too much? Too little? And all of these cues. And I think that is so powerful for everybody to hear because This is what we need to look out for in our decision-making processes. All of these little whispers, and sometimes they're not just whispers, they're yelling at us. And then eventually getting to that point, as you said, absolute knowing that this is the right thing for me. And I think that is such a powerful place to be. So can you tell us what has been the ripple effect of making that decision not to drink?
1: It's mostly been... ripple effect for myself at this point, better health, better sleep. I love the clarity of going to bed, not having had something to drink and the clarity with which I wake up. I love that I can drive my family home after an event because we live in a rural location and everything is at least 20 minutes drive for the nearest social event. And I really love that, that I can get our family home safely and we don't need to find somewhere to stay as much. I love that I'm not having that extra sugar and calories in my world. I'm more stable. I don't have that addictive behaviour or escapism behaviour of wanting to pour another drink in the evenings to relax. I've given away that narrative of needing something to relax and instead, I've been doing more work on actually facing my emotions and facing, okay, why is it that I feel that way in the afternoon? What is that? Is that stress? Is that anxiety? And what am I anxious about? Doing something different um, to replace that, replacing the alcohol with a more positive habit. And I guess it hasn't affected my marriage one bit. But I, I do think it's probably, I think people are less open to inviting you places because it can make other people feel uncomfortable. I think they feel like you're judging them, which that makes me a little bit sad that people kind of respond differently because they feel like I will judge them if I'm not drinking and they are, which is absolutely not the case, but that's okay. And Meg, I suppose, and I haven't seen it yet because our boys aren't drinking age, but one of the hugest, reasons for this decision as well, is that I wanted to show our boys that it's okay not to drink because before long, they'll be teenagers and drinking is such a big part of our culture. It's so normal. All of our families drink, friends, every, it's just part of our life. And not that I demonize alcohol at all. I wish I could consume it more healthily and safely. Turns out I can't. So, I I guess I'm an example for our boys and that's important to me as well, that they know that they have a choice and that it's okay either way. You can um, decide not to drink alcohol if you don't want to.
0: I think that's so beautiful to always remember that you can't be what you can't see. And Mm. so for young people to see people having a good time at an event, you don't have to be drunk. You don't have to be drinking the whole time. And also you touched on the discomfort of others and I think this is an important part of the decision-making process that when we do make decisions, there will be people that are uncomfortable about it and they're going to be uncomfortable about it for such a variety of different reasons. When I spent some time living in rural Australia, I was so surprised about the drinking culture. It was more socially acceptable at this time, it was years ago now, but it was more acceptable to drive after drinking with a family in your car than to not drink. Mm. And I thought that does not make sense. It does not make sense that I'm being looked at differently for not drinking and there's people driving with children in the car that have been drinking. And I know that that narrative has shifted but it's important to notice that our decisions will make other people feel uncomfortable and it's a part of the process.
1: Yes, and that we have no control over that, that it's – it's okay. And again, coming back to that point that people will process things, perceive things, make their own choices or perspective from their own stuff and that we have no control over that. And it's, it's okay. You know, it's okay if they feel uncomfortable and that what they think is okay. And what you think is okay. And Everyone can just be okay with respecting each other's choices. I, I wish we could move more towards that. That we all just go, <laughs> that's fine. Um, you know, just let everyone be. Let everyone be. Yeah. And
0: like that makes sense considering your circumstance, good decision. I back you. Let's go. And that was something really powerful on my journey is getting to that point where I would prefer to disappoint others than disappoint myself. Yeah to be true to myself, knowing that sometimes that's going to be deeply uncomfortable for other people. However, I'm the person that I go to bed with every night. Mm. It's me.
1: Yes. And I often say the greatest challenge I have every day is the woman in the mirror. It's absolutely true for me is managing myself. And I only get one body and I only get one brain and one life to live. And my choices that I own, I want to be happy with, and I just want to acknowledge my beautiful husband, who he enjoys a beer and he's a really quintessential kind of rural bloke, farmer, loved his rugby, you know the races, all of those things where we just that we associate with having a beer and he has never once since that decision. Said to me, "Would you like a drink?" Not once, and I am so grateful for that. He he doesn't make a deal of it; it's just how it is, and he supports me in a in a silent way. Like you know, that's just how it is now. And and he, I, I guess, I just wanted to acknowledge that sometimes the people who you think will be uncomfortable with it, because I thought he would be. Because having a beer together was always kind of our thing ever since we met. Now I have a kombucha or a, you know, mineral water with cordial in it or, you know, something else. And he has a beer and that's totally okay. And so you can also just, you can also assume things that aren't true. And I assumed that, that he would about how he would respond to my decision that he would be, it would make him uncomfortable. But in fact, it's not even been an issue. So Again, um, we can make people uncomfortable with our decisions and, we, and they may not understand them. Um, we have to be careful not to make assumptions about that as well.
0: And I think that's a beautiful example of how when we're clear, yes, when we've got that absolute that this is what I'm
1: working towards, people will respect that. Yeah, there's, there's so much clarity that comes from a decision which holds so much power. It, there's something magical it's it, decision making is phenomenal I'm, I'm' I teach this in my coaching program meg we have a whole <laughs> lesson called decision and permission um for mothers because I think it, there is so much gold that comes from decision making and moving forward with clarity it puts when you can focus your energy and where your attention goes energy flows so if you can have a decision and clarity and move forward in a in a focused direction what then can happen as a result of that in your life again you won't anticipate all of it but it, it there's such a positive flow on effect and i'm talking about this from the from the smallest of decisions like getting out of bed earlier or having a glass of water instead of a cup of coffee through to changing jobs moving towns you know bigger decisions there's there's power in decision making and it's a skill that i believe we can all develop and starts with understanding ourselves better
0: i love that idea of thinking about decisions from small things to the big things and also the more we can tackle those small things we can build our decision making muscles so we can get better at the big things And then it just becomes easier and easier because we're building up this capacity, we're strengthening this muscle to make decisions
1: that are aligned with what's right for us. It it does take practice and what I teach the women who come into my program is to get better at it by doing things like challenging yourself to order off a menu more quickly. I'm thinking of a beautiful client of mine. When she came into my program, she she would say, I'm shocking. I, I can't, I just can't decide anything. And I said, well, just start small, just become good at choosing what you're going to have for dinner off the menu, challenge yourself to walk into coals and, and make your decisions more quickly. Start small and get, and practice because it's a skill and all skills take practice. And as you say, building up the muscle so that those bigger decisions then don't seem um, so big. And you, you get used to and understand your own decision-making process. And coming back to, you use the word alignment, I think that is key, Meg, to, to make aligned decisions and take aligned action, not just decisions for decision's sake, but things that, are, that feel good for you, understanding what is in alignment for you. Is that right for me? having the clues or ways of knowing that for yourself. So much of what you say is so,
0: so powerful. Imagine if we had this ability to tap into what is right for us. So for people listening, I can imagine they're thinking, I've got no idea what's right for me. I know what my husband would like, my children would like, my wife would like, my principal would like but I do not know what is right for me so how can we start to tap into
1: that place of knowing what's right for me first of all you have to allow yourself the space and give yourself the permission there's the word permission again to explore what it is you want I know for the mums that I work with some of them will say to me I don't know what I want. I haven't thought about that for years. And I was, I, I was the same um, after having children. And this doesn't just apply to mothers, obviously, but it's, it's so common. Um, so it's actually asking yourself the question, and it will be uncomfortable to do that if you haven't done it for a while or if you're not used to it. And all sorts of barriers and stories will arise that you're not allowed to have that or you can't do that or you won't have time for that or you're too busy or we don't have the money or we can't afford it or you're too old or all of these stories will present themselves as soon as you ask yourself the question, what do I want? Another good question is what would I really love? And another great one, Meg, I love is to to be playful with this is wouldn't it be cool if... Write that at the top of a piece of paper and you put some music on, make yourself a cuppa and and just get everything down on paper. Wouldn't it be cool if that's a playful one? And so if you enter into this space of daydreaming or fantasizing, getting a piece of paper out and playing with this idea of what would I want, really encourage you to not allow the how of it to come up at all. Don't even allow it for one second the how how am I going to do this or really allow your mind to wander and feel free and playful and get it onto paper no matter what comes up out of you because that there's there's a lot of fear that comes with that about facing things that you may have been suppressing, as you said it early on, Meg, avoiding decisions or avoiding little voices that you hear within you or things, the little nudges that you get that pop up that you can then sometimes go, no, you just be quiet. I don't want to hear from you right now. It's not convenient that you're telling me this. (laughs) So I think allowing the space to explore what it is that you want with, without guilt, without constraints, without barriers, doesn't have to, no one has to know about it. No one has to see it. Uh, but going to that place within yourself first and finding an environment where you can do that is also great, like um a group coaching program or a community or somewhere if you need support to do that and then giving yourself permission and also really listening to your body. um we have this inbuilt emotional guidance system, and our body holds wisdom it never lies our body never lies, so the the inner whispers that you said and the inner voice, whatever you want to call it, our intuition, the nudges we get from the universe or however it is that you practice spirituality, perhaps it's through prayer or there's ways of tuning into yourself and listening to that, paying attention to that. That's where my alignment comes from. Sometimes it's very sudden where I will just have a knowing about something. That's a person I want to work with. That's the house I want to buy. That's the car I want to get. Or sometimes it's more gradual than that, where something might have to tap me on the shoulder for three years before I will know that that's what the next step I should take. So perhaps I needed to build the belief in myself or have the courage grow before I could make that certain decision. Um, But the whispers are always there and it takes making the time, making the space, trusting ourselves and listening, tuning into our body and listening to what it's telling us um, in order to make decisions and take action from an aligned place. And everyone's different in this way. So it's, again, just getting to know yourself uh, about what shows up for you. So do you have any strategies
0: for when people know what they want, they've created the space, they've given themselves permission and then inevitably something pops up if it's the self-doubt, if it's the I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, too old, too young, whatever it may be, how can they move through that resistance?
1: The fear will always show up. <laughs> <laughs> Always, unfortunately. And I think you have to have a good why you have to channel the why because I, I have this saying that my obligation becomes greater than my fear. And when my obligation becomes greater than my fear, then I can move through anything. It doesn't mean I won't feel the fear. It doesn't mean I won't feel the resistance and have to talk myself around to keep going, but I, I, I'm i deeply rooted and anchored in in the reason why I'm doing it. So I'm thinking of giving up alcohol. Um, I'm thinking of when I was writing my book and I was petrified about I'm not really a writer, I'm not a, I'm not a real writer, no one's going to read this, no one's going to, it's crap, and I would literally sit there with my head in my hands at the table having to... You know, and get the courage to write the next page. And it's it's actually about taking action despite the fear. You you need to know where you're going in, and sort of see it in your mind. That becomes your anchor image and also have a why. And when I when thinking about when I was writing my book, it was because I knew it would help people. And that is what kept me going. Thinking I had an image in my mind of someone holding my book and writing me an email saying, thank you so much for helping me. And the image when I was giving up alcohol was me being me fit and healthy and enjoying a drink other than alcohol and still being accepted and good and happy. Um, so create the image of where you're going and understand your why and get used to the feeling of fear, you know, just just go Okay, this is part of the process. Thanks for showing up there and letting me know that this is getting me out of my comfort zone. And thanks for trying to keep me safe, but I'm going to keep going. And I'm, and it's just taking, continuing to take those little action steps. Write the next page, have the next glass of water, go for the next walk, turn, go to bed at nine o'clock, turn your phone off, whatever it is the decision is. Um, and when all the voices show up to tell you you can't do it or you shouldn't do it. You just say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm in control here. This decision is what I want. It's a line for me. I'm going to be courageous and I'm going to keep going. So I would say have rituals for yourself because and, and kind of know in advance that you're going to have to push through sometimes and push through the fear, I mean, or the doubt or the worry. Have courage. Know your why. Have a vision. Have a goal. And have support as well, depending on the size of your decision and what you're facing um, will dictate what support you might need around you and maybe it's joining a challenge or having a coach or having a therapist or or someone you trust or your, your partner, someone to offer accountability and support as you move through because all change brings discomfort. Whenever we go to step outside of what the bounds of what's comfortable for us, there's discomfort. So and there's and sometimes even more than discomfort, you know, and it can drive us back into safety. So having that support is really is really important. So I hope that answers it okay, Meg.
0: Okay. That was sensational. I think I need to just have that clip, you know, that minute or two and I can just play it to everybody. Every time people are feeling like, oh, I'm not sure about this. Like, no, listen to Benita. You've got this. You've got this. Just keep moving forward. So to wrap up this incredible conversation, Benita, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that?
1: Sure. Let's do it. I am inspired by? People who know who they are what they want and they don't care too much about what anyone else thinks. When life feels hard? I retreat and need space for myself and usually need nature time as well. An underrated skill is? Doing things one-handed while holding a baby or children, I would say is underrated skill. It is incredible what women can do, or not just women, but people, parents, um, can do with one hand. And I am looking forward to? I'm looking forward to launching a membership in my business next month. Uh, we're, I'm launching a, it's called Glow, and we're working at the moment, working really hard on that, and so I'm, that's consuming a lot of my attention at the moment. I'm really excited about that.
0: I am so excited about that too, Benita. And I have just loved seeing you grow over the years. I've loved following your work and you are someone that walks your talk and you do what you say. And I think that is just so inspiring for big-hearted humans everywhere to see people showing up and shining in their own way. So thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much, Meg, and keep up the great work yourself. Benita is such an inspiration and I hope this conversation has given you a gentle nudge to take more aligned action in your life. To learn more about Benita's incredible work in the world, visit her website, benitabench.com, or you can follow her on Instagram and learn more practical ways to manage the daily juggle of life with more joy and confidence. If you love this episode, please share it with anyone in your life that would benefit from hearing Benita's warmth and wisdom. To learn how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event or make an inquiry about my game-changing workplace wellbeing program, Thrive by Design. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 56. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing, and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.